Welcome everyone. Uh, on behalf of uh, the European Institute and on behalf of the APCO Worldwide Perspectives on Europe series, I would really like to welcome you to a very timely and also what I'm expecting to be a very lively talk um, on Europe Where's the Passion by President Hans-Gerd Pötering. Um, before we start, I should just um, make a little comment that after the speech by Mr. Pertering and the subsequent debate, um, there'll be drinks out in the atrium, so please uh, do join us if you have the time and have any further questions that you'd like to discuss then. So um, I'll just be very, very brief, um, but I should say that um, the title of the talk today is of course very timely. It's always a timely topic to discuss the passion of Europe. But since we are seeing quite a few challenges um, and even open disagreement between core member states, if you want, in, in Europe, um, we will welcome Mr. Pittering's um, take on the topic. We have problems with some of the very pillars of European integration, economic and financial cooperation, continues to uh, dominate the agenda. We've seen, even this last week, some serious remarks made on um, another great uh, achievement in the European history, so the Schengen Agreement. And we continue to see that uh, questions of the existing welfare uh, systems in Europe needs to be dealt with as well. So monumental changes are happening at the European continent. We have very different um, but direct implications for people's daily day lives. And still, the EU citizens continue to also question whether Brussels or Strasbourg um, have the answers. So today, having the pleasure of uh, Mr. President um, Pertering, we can look at some of these issues. Um, you will all know that uh, Mr. Pittering is the former president of the European Parliament, but also that he enjoys the position as chairman of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung. Um, you may also know that he is, in fact, the longest-serving MEP. Um, he's been a member since the first direct elections in 1979, and from uh, 94 <laughs> <laughs> uh, until 2007, this was as first vice-chair and then chairman of the EPP group. So I won't be able to go through the full list of um, achievement uh, in your distinguished political career, but I do very much look forward to hear your take on Europe, where is the passion? Okay, I go there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Sarah. It's such a great pleasure to be here again in the London School of Economics, and I was here, if I'm right, the last time in March 2008. And uh, I'm so happy to be back, and I'm especially happy that the best president the European Parliament ever had, Lord Henry Plum, is with us today, and a good British European, Henry. It's really great to have you here. And although uh, his party at that time, in January 19. 87 was not member of the European People's Party, my political family. Uh, I voted uh, for Henry Plum, but you knew it that uh, I did, Henry. So it's so, so good to see you. And I'm very happy to see Professor Maurice Fraser and some other friends here as well. I would have liked to be here last week when 
you had this very exceptional wedding in Westminster Cathedral uh, with Prince uh, William and uh, Catherine Middleton. But uh, unfortunately, I could only see it uh, on television, but it was very remarkable, and I wish the young couple all the best. And if you allow, I hope I'm not indiscreet with what I'm saying now. Ah, my dear friend, uh, what was your first name? You, Robert, Robert, I'm seeing a former colleague of the European Parliament, so I will not ask all of you because uh, I have not met everybody of you. I, I remember now when I speak about um, Prince William, I'm thinking of his father, Prince Charles, and I had a quite an extraordinary experience. Like uh, President or Lord Henry Plum knows, a President of the European Parliament has to make uh, many visits. And uh, many Presidents of Parliament go to China, to Beijing, and I thought I will only make one trip in Asia and I go to Japan. And so I had the honor to see the Emperor. And the representative of the European Union in uh, Tokyo uh, was a British. And uh, I said to our ambassador, I think his name was Richardson, uh, I said, oh, I will see uh, Prince Charles. And then four weeks later, um, his mother. And then he said, oh, you cannot say when you speak about the Prince of Wales, you cannot uh, use family uh, relation names and you have to speak about uh, Her Majesty the Queen and when you speak to the Majesty, uh, Her Majesty the Queen you have to speak about the Prince of Wales. Okay, I said and then uh, Prince Charles came to the European Parliament to the 12th floor or 11th floor uh, in Brussels and I told him this story and preventing the personal relations between the, uh, the, the Queen and the Prince of Wales. And then at the end of his visit, he had made a speech on environment, I accompanied him uh, to the exit, and then he said, oh, President, you told me such a nice story, I will tell my mum this story. So <laughs> that was very nice. So uh, you asked me uh, to uh, speak in my uh, lecture about Europe, where is the passion? And I am uh, very a very bad reader and so I think I should not uh, use so much my, my papers here and uh, if I make mistakes please forgive me because I will try to speak a bit, uh, little bit more uh, freely. Of course we have problems now in the European Union and everybody speaks about it and especially the people in Germany because the Germans now think that they have to pay the bill. And we know that this is not true. And I want to quote the economist. The economist said uh, in April the 7th of April this year, when the ancient Greeks invented the word crisis, they had in mind a short period of acute stress. The modern Greeks have been experiencing crisis for over a year, over a year and no end is in sight. Everybody speaks now in the European Union about the crisis of the euro. And I'm deeply convinced it's not the crisis of the euro. The challenge is that some countries have, to spend, have spent too much money and have a too big uh, deficit. And this is independent whether a country is member of the 
currency system of the European Union with 16 states, or like you here in Great Britain. And I learned today that if you take the figures of the European Union, that now the United Kingdom has a deficit of 80%, uh, the overall deficit, compared with the grand national product. And just in this year, or in the last year, 2010, you had a deficit of 11%, or Britain had a, you are not all British, uh, as I may assume, a deficit of 11% uh, in relation to the uh, GDP. And so, if there are problems like in Portugal, in Greece, in Ireland, we should not say this is the crisis of the euro. It is a crisis of those countries who have spent too much money. And even now in my country, for a long time, we had only a deficit, the whole debt rate, of 60%. Now the Germans are at 80%. And now we have to give these guarantees to, uh, with a mechanism, the, the financial mechanism, which we have now in the Eurozone. We have to give the money, the grants, the uh, guarantees. And so far, it has not cost money to the Germans or to the others. But the psychological situation is as if we are spending a lot of money. And I think what we need now is a double strategy. On the one hand side, we need a position of solidarity. And our former chancellor and the only honorary citizen, living honorary citizen of uh, Europe, uh, Helmut Kohl, once said that we endanger the foundations of the House of Europe if we don't act with a position of solidarity. So we have to do it on the one hand side. But on the other hand side, we have to ask the governments in the concerned countries to do their utmost to reduce uh, the death rate. And I say as a Christian Democrat that I have greatest respect uh, for the socialist prime minister of Greece, uh, Georgios uh, Papandreou, that he is doing his utmost to reduce uh, the deficit spending, and I think this is the right direction. And I think it's very useful to think about the principles of our economy. And we in Germany speak about soziale Marktwirtschaft, social market economy. Maybe a little bit of a strange word for you, but I want to explain what it means, and it's even now uh, in the Treaty of Lisbon. We are not defending a capitalist system. We are defending the market, a market economy, but the market is not an instrument in itself. It has to serve the people. It has a social dimension. And so that's why we speak now in the Treaty of Lisbon about social market economy. And social market economy means that and this is the consequence of the experiences of the financial crisis in the world, that we need order. And we would not have had these uh, difficulties uh, in the world with the financial markets if there had been better uh, regulations and a better order. And now it's the great task to find the right balance for regulation for order in the financial field. And this is a task for the European Parliament, as far as the Eurozone is concerned, and it is uh, a task for uh, the whole world now 
to find the right answers. This is my first point. So I hope that we find solutions, we help, and the member states who are in difficulty have to do the right things. And now I think all member countries of the Eurozone, and even those who are not part of the Eurozone, and your government is doing, making an, a big effort to reduce the deficit. And in the Treaty of Maastricht, as you know, it, this created the basis for the European uh, currency, is not only uh, in the Treaty of Maastricht, we speak not only about a common currency, but about, uh, about more cooperation in the field of economics as well. And this we are lacking so far, and I hope that the governments, the European Parliament, will go into the right direction so that we have more coordination in the field of macroeconomics as well. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to come to a subject which I think is for our future in the European Union, in Europe, of greatest importance. And this is the development in the Arab world. And Sarah was so kind to mention, uh, I don't know whether it's always a compliment, that I'm member of the European Parliament since 1979, but it's true. And uh, it's true, yes, uh, there will be in two years, I have spent my whole, my ha not my whole life, uh, you cannot, <laughs> half of my life uh, in the European uh, Parliament, and it's not the time to say now here in London when I might uh, finish in the European Parliament. So it, de it depends, of course, on, on many factors. But if somebody would have told us in 1979 that three nations, which were occupied by the Soviet Union, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and that countries of the Warsaw Pact, the military system of, of communism, that Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary would join the European Union, and that my country, Germany, would be unified the 3rd of October 1990. My answer, if somebody would have predicted this in 1979, my answer would have been, uh, this is a vision, this is a dream, and it will not happen in our lifetime. So it has happened, because the people in Poland and in all the other countries in Eastern Germany, they believed in freedom. And what was possible there is possible in other regions of the world as well. And I am deeply impressed by the young people in the Arab world who are now fighting for freedom for, the for their own dignity and for democracy. The beginning of March I have been in Cairo on the Tahrir place and these, the, the people I met, the young people I met, there were some older, my age, uh, but most of them were young people and they are wonderful people. And even if some of them, most of them could speak English so we could communicate and even those who did not speak English, said to me, you are welcome, 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 welcome. And there was such a sympathy, and with those with whom one could communicate, one deeply felt, I deeply felt, that they want to live the same values we are living here in the European Union. And I think this is very encouraging. And now, of course, it's an enormous task that those people who started the peaceful revolution 
finally win it, win them, win uh, win the re uh, revolution. And this in in history has not always been the case. Very often, uh, some people started the revolution and others won them, and then there was a. Um, dictatorial regime again and so let's hope that this is uh, not the case in the Arab countries and of course the situation in all Arab countries are different. Egypt is different from Tunisia uh, then uh, Syria is different uh, to Morocco and then of course uh, Libya where I and I say it um, as my personal position would have liked that all members uh, of uh, the Security Council from the European Union had voted in favor of stopping uh, Gaddafi. And so now I think we have to do our utmost as European Union, as the member states, Britain, Germany, all the others, and the foundation I share, the Konrad Adenauer Foundation, to support uh, the people in their ambition for democracy. And the Konrad Adenauer Foundation has representatives in Morocco, in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Amman, in Jordan, in Jerusalem, in Ramallah, in the West Bank, in Palestine, uh, Palestinian territories, and in Abu Dhabi. And we give advice to the people, judicial advice, or we have um, an exchange of views about system of economy, social market economy, and so on. And if we are asked to give our advice, we are willing to do it. And this question, how the situation develops in the Arab countries, is not only of greatest importance for the people, for the freedom of the people, for the dignity of the people, is of greatest importance for the Western world, for the European Union, in our relation with, uh, uh, in our relation with the uh, Arab and Muslim countries. And in Germany, I don't know how it is here in, in Britain. In Germany, very often the impression is created that the Muslim belief or Islam is bad. And I think this is a total wrong attitude. Of course, if people are terrorists and use the re re religion as, 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 a, as a reason for this, then they misuse the Muslim belief. But the average normal Muslim uh, whether young people, elderly people, they want to live peacefully. And this is my experience with thousands of, uh, uh, of, of discussions with people over in the Arab world uh, in the many years uh, I have visited uh, the, the countries of the Arab world. And if finally democracy has a chance, then this proves that democracy and the Islam belief can go together. And you as uh, students here of London School of Economics, Political Science and so on, you all know what Samuel, uh, Samuel Huntington once uh, predicted or he said this could happen, uh, clash of civilization. And if you, you would believe in the clash of civilization, then it would come like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think we have to do our utmost by cooperation, by partnership, to prevent such a clash of civilization. And we will prevent it if there is democracy in the Arab countries. And I hope that it is possible and everything is connected in our world that we will get peace between Israel 
and Palestine. And we in the European Parliament believe, and I'm chairing a working group uh, which I created as President of Parliament and uh, when I left uh, this responsibility I was asked to continue as Chairman of the Middle East um, Working Group of the European Parliament. We think there should be a two-state solution. Israel in safe borders and Palestine in safe borders. And this of course has preconditions. It means that there is a stop of the settlements from the Israeli side in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and Hamas has to stop its violence. And I am in total disagreement with the statement of Hamas concerning now the death of Osama bin Laden. And this statement criticizing or uh, applauding, to, uh, applauding to Osama bin Laden what Hamas have done, praising him, is a totally wrong signal and it would support people on the other side who don't want peace. And so I really hope that the agreement which was found between Fatah and Hamas, and politics is always a process, will finally lead to a peace solution with Israel in safe borders and Palestine in safe borders as well. And both the Israelis and the Palestinians have their dignity and I think this is what we as Europeans should defend, the dignity of all people in the world and here in Israel and in Palestine. So ladies and gentlemen, my next point is environment. I signed with this pen the 23rd of uh, April 2009 the European climate change uh, legislation. And this, by the way, is a present, a gift of the football organization of Lower Saxony, and the capital is Hanover. Uh, and there are common routes between uh, Hanover and uh, the United Kingdom, as you know. We can go into the details in the discussion. I can tell you some nice stories about that as well. So it's a present of the football organization and these presents you can keep. You have not to give it away. So I signed, I signed the European legislation against climate change together with the then Deputy Prime Minister uh, of the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic had the presidency in the European Union, uh, Mr. Nikas, who is now uh, the Prime Minister uh, of the Czech Republic. And we as Europeans took the lead in the fight against climate change to reduce CO2 production, to be more committed to renewables, uh, renewable energy and so on. And we have seen now in Cancun in December last year that the other countries are step by step joining what we propose. And we need now the support of China, of Russia, the United States, and Brazil, and all the others in the framework of the United Nations. And I'm astonished that we, the Europeans, when we do good things, when we take a lead in a question, and climate change is one of the most important uh, subjects uh, in, our, in our lifetime, and in your lifetime, you are, as students, you are the generation of the 21st century, when our American friends spend somewhere $1 million, everybody knows it. 
because they they have a system of uh, public uh, to to make things public but we are very bad in selling our good achievements and so i think the european union and we all and uh, even if one is not so in favor of european integration but one has to be in favor of the defense uh, of environment or we can call it creation uh, whatever you like which word you prefer but we should be united as europeans to defend uh, our uh, our achievements and to tell the people that we have to go into uh, this direction because we know if uh, climate change continues what terrible consequences it will have and i will not go into the details uh, for several reasons so let us continue and let us take the lead in this question and hopefully we find an international agreement in the framework of the united nations then my next point and i try to uh, be in the framework of 30 minutes when i was chairman of the epped group uh, ed meant uh, european democrats and the british conservatives were part of that as well but then in 2009 unfortunately i say they left but i'm not uh, uh, commenting on that but I was always chairman of the EPPED group, not only of the Christian Democrats, of the others uh, as well. Uh, so when we, for the first time, were elected to the European Parliament in 1979, uh, I was very often asked as a candidate for my party in Lower Saxony, in Hanover and Osnabrück, you know the Westphalian Peace Treaty from Münster and Osnabrück, 1648, there are some things which connect us, uh, the British and uh, uh, the people from Lower Saxony and Hanover as well. Uh, I very often was asked in 79, why do you want to be a member of the European Parliament? You have nothing to say in Brussels uh, and in Strasbourg. And I see the people in front of me asking me this question, good willing people. And they said you should be a member of the German Parliament. But apart whether it would have been possible at that time, maybe later, uh, perhaps not in 79, but my answer always was we need a strong Europe because we can only defend our values and interests if we are united. And one day the European Parliament will be strong. This was always my, uh, my belief. And in 1979, the European Parliament had no legislative power, nothing. We had a little bit influence on the budget and I remember when I once said uh, we have uh, no power at all, a colleague from Rheinland-Pfalz, Horst Langes, you may remember him, my colleagues, uh, um, he said, you are wrong, we had some uh, budgetary competences. This is true, but not very much. But zero legislation power. And now, even before the realization of the Treaty of Lisbon, I had, as President of the European Parliament, the power to sign uh, this uh, document as far as climate change is concerned, and the European Parliament is the co-legislator with the Council of Ministers. And now with the Lisbon Treaty, we have the chance that the European Parliament, in almost all questions, excluded uh, are the, the taxes, we are the co-legislator. And ladies and gentlemen, this is an enormous, enormous progress which we have made. And it's um, uh, an expression that democracy 
and the parliamentary system is now more or less realized in the European Union and it is of course a great step forward. And ladies and gentlemen, I am coming to my uh, last point and this is foreign policy. And you know that foreign policy, security policy, defense policy is still an area which is not part of the communitarian system. That means we have no majority voting. And it's still an intergovernmental cooperation. But we have some changes for the better. And Lord Plum just told me that he listened to a speech yesterday night, a remarkable speech to the President of the European Council, Hermann van Rompuy. He is Belgium. He may not be so known in Europe, and this is a task of the media to make the people of our institutions known. The President of Parliament, Jerzy Buzek, the President of the Commission, I think he, is most, he will be known by most of them, Jose Manuel Durao Barroso. And Hermann van Rompuy now is the President of the European Council, so that there is continuity. And then we have the High Representative, who is at the same time Vice President of the Commission, Lady Ashton from your country, and bringing those two positions, High Representative and Vice President of the Commission together, means that you prevent conflicts. In the past we had two people, Javier Solana, who did an excellent job, and then Benita Ferrero-Waldner for the European Commission. But if you are representing two different sides, even if the people can work on a personal basis well together, there will be conflicts. And now this is united in one position. And then, of course, the national parliaments are strengthened and we will have uh, common European uh, diplomatic external service. These are important changes, but these changes do not guarantee, do not guarantee uh, the success of our foreign and security policy. It needs now to be uh, fulfilled. That needs it, we need now the political will for a, foreign, um, uh, for a common foreign and security policy. And as we know, today everything is connected. And take the question of uh, energy supply. Uh, if you take the question of energy supply, we had, as you know, some years ago, the uh, crisis of delivering gas to, from Russia via Ukraine to Poland to Germany and other countries. And so what we have to do, and this is part of foreign policy and everything is connected, to prevent a situation that energy supply can be used as an instrument of foreign affairs so that some can say we stop uh, the, uh, the, the, the supply of gas or oil and so on. And as you know, we we, the, the North Stream uh, gas pipeline is going to be built and it's, uh, it's now already the work is going on from Russia to Germany. And uh, I was always uh, in the past a little bit critical because uh, uh, the partners, uh, the Baltic countries, Poland and Sweden and others were not consulted as they should have been done. But now I think things are progressing. And I'm very much in favor of building a pipeline uh, south of Russia as well, which is called Nabucco. It will go from Azerbaijan, then to Turkey, and then 
through Romania, Bulgaria, uh, to Austria. This is not an attitude against Russia, but if we diversify our energy supply, which is of greatest importance for each of us, then if we diversify it, then we more or less have a guarantee that if there are problems in the one part of the world, we can solve those problems uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, the deliver uh, of gas and oil from other parts. And there is a great chance, of course, in Northern Africa uh, for closer uh, cooperation uh, as well. And ladies and gentlemen, there would be a lot to say uh, more, and, but I would like uh, to stop here, but uh, to, to finalize uh, as uh, follow, following. You are British, as, as far as you are British, uh, here at London School of Economics, others are not British. Uh, I am German, but for those who are living uh, in Europe, we are Europeans. And I think we should never forget, and this is very important, I was chairman of my party in my region for 20 years, and I gave it up the 1st of October uh, to a young person uh, with an Italian name, uh, Christian Calderone. So you understand, or it's not a German name, uh, his father came from Italy, and he was born uh, in Germany, and immigration, migration is another great challenge, but uh, we might discuss it uh, uh, a few minutes later. I'm mentioning this because Europe does not start in Brussels or Strasbourg. Europe begins where you are at home. In my case, in a little village, but Eburg, uh, near Osnabrück, uh, and there were the bishops. There was a Protestant bishop, and this is a story connected uh, with the uh, United Kingdom and Hanover, a Protestant bishop after a Catholic bishop with the Treaty of uh, Westphalia, 1648, a Protestant bishop followed a Catholic one, and he was the father uh, and his wife Sophie, the mother of George I uh, of England. So I could go further into details, I will not do it. I'm mentioning this because Europe starts at home. And then we are living in our regions, we are living in our countries, and with our countries, those who are British, they get the European citizenship with the British citizenship. So there are four levels, the local level, the regional level, the national level, and the European level, and then we have a responsibility for the world. And those who only see their hometowns will not defend the hometown. And those who see only their country their nation, they will become nationalists and nationalism leads to war. And those who only feel as Europeans are without roots. So I say your home, your country and the European Union to be a European. This belongs together and I think this we should tell our people in our specific countries and try to convince them to go with us into the future of the European Union. And the most important thing is, and maybe that the British uh, will not uh, be, uh, you will understand it, but you have not so much experienced it as we as Germans with a totalitarian system of national socialism and communism. In the past, very often, 
The power, those who had the power, decided what was right. And now the great achievement in the European Union is that we act together on the basis of treaties. And these treaties mean law. And the law has a power today. And this guarantees, hopefully, through the whole 21st century, our freedom, democracy, and the dignity of the human being in the European Union, including the United Kingdom. Thank you so much. broad uh, range of topics and a lot to cover and I'm sure that now questions will also perhaps be um, from very different angles but would you be happy that we collect a few questions sure, and then like, so. we uh, give the floor back to you so please yes uh, thank you, Mr. President. Uh, I'm Jerry Wong. Uh, what I pity, I'm not British, I'm not European, I'm Chinese. I come here to learn from and support European countries. Uh, two questions. The first one, uh, I'm quite interested in the term, the uh, social market economy, because my country, China, now is uh, practicing a socialist market economy. Can you elaborate a little bit about the difference between those two terms? And the second one, you mentioned that uh, European countries is taking a lead in fighting against climate change. But uh, in some way that the uh, United States is not cooperating um, with, uh, in this respect because they refuse to sign the Kyoto Protocol. So how would the European Union engage and coordinate with the United States? Thank you. Okay, take a couple more. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Um, I'm an alumni student here at LSE from the European Institute and I'm Italian. So I'm European as well. Um, I fully appreciate your, um, your speech. Actually, I completely agree with you. Um, however, there are two points that I would like to ask because obviously it's very easy sometimes to see the broad picture. However, when we go into the nitty-gritty details, there are so many problems in general. And one policy which I think we haven't mentioned here is the social policy in general because, of course, uh, I think... Uh, the economic policy is important in order to be, you know, unified. However, there are the social system in each single country is so different that probably that is also an obstacle that I think the European Parliament uh, should, and the Council as well of Ministers, should, uh, should overtake. The other one uh, is foreign defense policy and the most the European neighbor policy. We already have policies in the North Africa. However, I think, in my personal opinion again, that we can't help the others if, first of all, we are not uni united ourselves inside. Because uh, when we speak with one voice, and we mean really with one voice, we are pretty, I mean, I, I would say effective. However, especially in foreign defense policy and what happens in Libya now shows even more. Uh, one goes to one side, the other one goes to the other, because national interest and sometimes special relationship or whatever we're going to call it, they are pretty, you know, probably stronger than, than the European. So I would like to say, don't you think that the European Parliament, and in particular the EPP here, I mean, I, I followed the EPP in the last years as well, um, don't you think you should start really taking a, a strong step into this, I would say, unification process, maybe even risking a little bit with the, with the people? Thank you very much. Any more questions for the first round? Yeah. Yes, thank you. My name is Florence Deloche-Godez. Um, I am French. And uh, I would like to come back to the title of the presentation, Europe, why is the patient? 
because, um, well, you appeared very passionate, which was uh, refreshing and encouraging. But still, there is a problem, especially with the EP, and I would like you to comment on it, is that the more powerful the EP is, the lower the turnout uh, during the European election is. And um, that is, well, quite a problem. And I would like you also to comment on the idea, is, I think, put forward by Sarah and Simon X, that is maybe the way of electing um, the MEPs is problematic and does not create a link between the citizens and the institution. And maybe we should allow um, the voters to rank uh, the different uh, candidates that are on the list. Okay, this uh, was really uh, a great, uh, how shall I say, frame of uh, questions. I did not understand so well the second name, so allow me to say the first names. Uh, Jerry, I understood quite well, uh, from China. So I could not explain to you the socialist market economy in China. Uh, I don't know whether the Chinese government itself can explain it. Uh, but what I can explain, I'm not an economist, but at least the principles of social market economy. As I said already, I don't believe in a capitalist system. Capitalist system would mean that uh, that money and uh, whatever you have is totally free in its uh, movement and so on and so on. I think we need order. Uh, but it's a great balance. In principle, I believe in the market because the market we are all. We are the consumers, we are the people, uh, the actors, we buy things, uh, we sell uh, things. Uh, but there must be, I give you an example, there must be order if in the end there would be the dominance of one factory building in the European Union cars. Let's say that in the end there are only two big factories uh, who build cars and, and they make arrangements. And they say, oh, we make arrangements how much your car should cost and my car uh, should cost. So this would prevent competition. So we need order for competition. And this we do by, uh, by, uh, by European law and, of course, by national law as well. And the market uh, needs to fulfill uh, social uh, or has, has to fulfill social aspects of, of, the, of the human life. And I think this is, uh, this is important. And we learn from the financial crisis that we need uh, new structures for the banks. They need a special uh, basis of own money. So if they only uh, uh, borrow money and there is not a solid uh, basis, I'm not an expert for these questions, but this is what, what I feel and what my colleagues who are experts uh, tell me. So we need to make the financial market more stable and the, in the end the great question is how to find uh, the right uh, balance. You mentioned the Kyoto Protocol, right? Our American friends, uh, I think President Clinton uh, agreed to the protocol, but the Congress uh, never ratified it. I think this is a, s a situation. And we need now, with a second approach, 
uh, hopefully uh, we, we get the agreement of, uh, of, of President Obama, of his administration, and hopefully then of the Congress uh, as well. And my understanding is that the awareness of environmental questions are increasing uh, in the United States of America, like in other areas uh, of the world, and including China. And I think we should do our utmost now, after the political statements in Cancun in December in Mexico, that we finalize this now into an international treaty in the framework of the United Nations. Then, if I understood your first name correctly, is it Khalid? No, Michele. Mi Michele. Yeah. It sounds rather Italian, Michele. <laughs> okay, uh, but you are a British citizen. Ah, you are Italian, but I never heard an Italian speaking such a good English, so this is... <laughs> okay, okay, va bene. <laughs> va bene, okay, va bene. Ho uh, un grande admirazione per l'Italia. The Italians always find solutions, you know. The Germans would long have given up, but the Italians find solutions. And, 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 and in, I, I experienced eight different groups in our, Henry and Robert, you remember, eight different uh, groups from Italy in our EPP-ED group, and they were quarreling in the group, and then they walk around the parliament, embrace themselves, and they find solutions. This is, this is Italy, and so you survived since 2,000 years. Anyhow, now, now to, the, to the question uh, of social policy. We don't want to harmonize everything in the European Union, but we must make sure, and that's why we have the Charter of Human Rights, uh, which is part of the Lisbon Treaty. Unfortunately, uh, it was not uh, agreed by Britain, but I want to say that I honor very much that uh, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown achieved to ratify uh, the Treaty of Lisbon as such uh, in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords. And I want to thank uh, Lord Plum especially that he did his utmost that uh, the Treaty of Lisbon was accepted in the House of Lords uh, as well. And, and people very often forget what personalities have done. And in politics, normally, you don't get thanks. And I know that many people are very critical uh, with former Prime Minister Gordon Brown. I appreciate uh, very, very much what he has done to ratify the Treaty of Lisbon in the House of Commons and uh, in the House of Lords with great opposition. And I think this is uh, really, for him, uh, historic and, and uh, something which will on the positive side of his political achievements. So I said I regret that Britain is not part of this uh, Grundrechte Charta, the Charter of Fundamental Rights, but, and we have a social charter, as you know, and the basis of that is there should be minimal standards, and we cannot harmonize everything. We cannot have the same pensions in Portugal as we might have in, in Sweden. Do we have uh, people from Sweden here, students from Sweden? No, but we have Sarah from Denmark, so you represent the Nordic countries. Not the same. So we, pardon? Not the same. Not the same, no. But you were very strong once in the, but the Swedes as well, but now it's everything in balance. Okay, okay so. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, so, minimal standards and countries can go further if they want. 
but we cannot harmonize everything, but there should be for each person uh, a minimum uh, that the persons can, can live under uh, good human uh, conditions. And there will always be the question, where should the European Union interfere by legislation? For instance, if you take the question uh, of, I don't know what I, whether I find the right words, uh, when a child is born, how long the mother can have leave? Leave is maternity leave. leave. Uh, maternity, maternity leave. So some things there should be a question for the national level. Other things it should be for the uh, European level. So you always have this uh, question, uh, but one has to discuss this on a on a on a case to case uh, basis. Uh, when you are demanding, uh, Michele, a common defence, I could not agree more. Uh, Konrad Adenauer, who gave the foundation which I have the honor to chair, the Adenauer Foundation, he wrote, uh, wrote in his uh, biography that his saddest hour was when the European defense community failed in August 1954. It was in the National Assembly in France, all the other countries, the, the five of the six had ratified already the defense community and, um, and the government uh, in France at that time uh, was not willing to discuss this, and so it, the defense community was, was dead. And Konrad Adenauer says uh, this was his uh, uh, darkest time in his 14 years chancellorship. And it takes a long time to come, to come back. And I am very much in favor of more cooperation in the field of defense, especially if you don't have money it's totally counterproductive that all countries or the big countries uh, who produce weapons, that each country does it alone. It would be much more effective if one does it together and you would uh, save, uh, save money. And um, I think this is the direction in which we have to go. And you said one important uh, phrase, everything was of course important what you said, but one especially very convincing uh, phrase, you said, we cannot help the others if we are not united. And this is really true. And I am very sad, and this has something to do with your country, when to Lampedusa came 30,000 people or 20, a little bit more than 20,000 people. And we are in the European Union uh, discussing on a non-acceptable, in a non-acceptable way, uh, this challenge. And we forget to tell our people and our public what a great advantage, what a great chance the developments in the Arab world are for us. But we are not speaking about that, or we don't get, get it into the media. We, we uh, have our fights about the distribution uh, of 20,000 uh, people, which is not very much when you consider uh, that uh, in the European Union we have 500 million uh, uh, people. Germany accepted in the 90s 365,000 people from the Balkans. And uh, so one should take that into consideration. And there were some German politicians criticizing Italy. I was not so happy with that because if you criticize and you start criticize, then you have the, the escalation, the rhetoric escalation, and one always should try to find, uh, find peaceful uh, solutions. But I agree to you, 
uh, as far as defense uh, is concerned. Then Madame de la France. Uh, unfortunately, I could not uh, understand correctly your name. Florence or Florence, like the beautiful city in uh, in Italy again. So, uh, but you are French, Florence, Florence. Uh, you are right. Unfortunately, the participation in the European elections goes down. In Germany, uh, we were successful uh, with the last election, 2009, to keep exactly the level uh, we had in 2004. And uh, but unfortunately, the turn out in elections and referenda go down in all countries and not only in the European Union, in other parts of the world uh, as well. And I will be very interested to see how the turnout today is in the referendum here in the United Kingdom. But I don't want to want to escape from the challenge we have there. And I think what is needed that our media, uh, especially television, that they give more reports about European politics. In Germany, we have newspapers, and one is present here. They have, I am not here, I'm not paid for making compliments. Uh, but there are uh, newspapers in Germany, they, they are acceptable as far as they report about European uh, developments. But there are newspapers boulevard newspapers who only bring terrible, terrible stories about the European Union, what it costs and so on and so on. And this creates an atmosphere uh, which is totally uh, against Europe and the European Union. And then we have uh, television, uh, the private television, almost nothing you see there concerning Europe. And in my country we have uh, uh, of, of um, Officielle, it, it's not state-owned, but they have a special uh, official character, the first and the second program in Germany on German television, and they, they get a lot of money from, from the people who are watching it. They are a little bit more open than the private television, but they don't do uh, enough. Uh, so we have to, to improve this. Then the election... Uh, of the members of parliament. This is a difficult question. You in France for a long time had nationalists and then you, uh, you divided uh, La Grande Nation in different regions and so you have regionalists like we have uh, for my party in Germany. And I tell you how we do it in Lower Saxony. We are uh, five members, no four members uh, from Lower Saxony from my party and although we don't have uh, uh, constituencies in a legal sense, and here in Britain you have uh, regionalists now as well, you have changed your system, uh, so uh, we, the four Christian Democrats from Lower Saxony, we are all responsible for one part of Lower Saxony. So my party knows where I am responsible. I'm responsible for the western part of Lower Saxony, that's to the border of the Netherlands, then my other colleagues are responsible for the other parts. And so if the party wants to communicate with you or the citizens, they know who is the responsible member, uh, member of, uh, of parliament. And I think uh, we can even be better in that. And if you allow me, we are so far in European integration that one can give an advice as well. I sometimes have the impression that the members 
of the European Parliament from France are more oriented to Paris than to their own region. I think there can be some improvements as well. Allow me to say this. I think this is part of friendship that we are so free to say to each other where, at least in our opinion, there could be improvements. Thanks. Any more questions? Yes, please. There's a microphone coming. One second. Dr. Pettering, my name is Ivana Estahazi, and I'm actually also a journalist um, working for Wirtschaftswoche. Um, I remember last time I had the opportunity to uh, listen to one of your speeches was in Dublin, uh, just before the first referendum. At the time you were reassuring the, the Irish that there would be no change in their tax system. Do you think it's actually right that uh, the German and the French government are putting so much pressure on Dublin now to increase their corporate tax rate? Okay. Yes, you. I saw another hand. Hi, um, I'm uh, Tim, I'm a student here at LSE. Uh, you um, mentioned um, uh, how glad you were to have a chance to visit uh, the Maghreb and visit uh, Egypt and, uh, and show your support for uh, the uh, democratic push for democracy in that part of the world. Uh, from a European perspective, uh, what do you think can be done with the um, Mediterranean Association agreements and the reform of them uh, to to encourage uh, uh, these these national movements in that country, with, uh, specifically with regard to um, removing tariffs on uh, ag agricultural products, which uh, make up a huge proportion of GDP in these countries, and also with regards to your point about clash of civilizations. Uh, isn't the biggest thing that Europe could do in this regard would be to press ahead with uh, uh, bringing Turkey within into the European Union? Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> okay, a last question in the front, please. I am uh, Michael Gavrilovich, a native of the only capital in Europe that has been bombed by both NATO and the Nazis. I'm also a citizen of the United Kingdom. Ich spreche auch Deutsch. <laughs> um, 14 of the countries that have bombed the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia or Serbia are European Union countries. Uh, your country, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Putting, has been at war with another country in Europe for the first time since 1945. This country, my country now, has also been at war with another European country since 1945, so has France. Denmark, I notice the chair ladies from there, has not been at war with anyone since 1864, the last time the Kingdom of Denmark fought over Schleswig-Holstein with Prussia and Austria-Hungary. But in 1999, the Danes had nothing better to do than to go along and bomb a country that has not as much as broken a pane of glass in Denmark. At the end of the day, you know, the fact is that the United States cracked the whip and all these countries simply went along. 
As far as I know, the Parliament of Westminster did not discuss any of it. They clicked their heels and Britain was part of an aggressive alliance. The same occurred in Germany, the same occurred in all countries in Europe. Uh, if I can also mention something else, because this is important, Mr. Putin, speaking from Moscow, by the way, that also is in Europe. Europe is all the way to the Euros. Euro, Europe includes Belgrade and, and Sarajevo and everything else, so you're hijacking here the entire continent, and in fact you're speaking only on behalf of the uh, West European subcontinent. But a very important statement by Mr. Putin some two or three years ago directed at countries of the European Union was in fact on this business of energy. Mr. Putin said, we want to discuss with the countries of Europe directly and have bilateral relationships, but they're afraid to speak to us. If they're not prepared to come forward and to discuss their needs with us, we will have to do it with Washington first. So I'm simply telling you here that you know we have to take into account the position of Europe's power, that when it comes, in fact, to armies, when it comes to armed force, when it comes to intervention, Europe, we had Napoleon's Europe, we had Hitler's Europe, but this appears to be an Americanized Europe. You may have different views. Maybe you can comment on them. Thank you. Okay. We'll take one very last question at the very back, and then you will have the chance to answer all of these challenging questions. Hi, thanks very much. I'm, uh, I'm neither European um, nor from the UK. I'm American. And I'll refrain from commenting on our friend from Serbia <laughs> and the wisdom of the NATO bombing. Um, but uh, my question is related back to the topic uh, and passion. And I wonder, the, the, it's been said, I, I don't know by whom, but that nothing excites people so much as taxation. Um, and short of, especially in the United States, short of um, Europe becoming uh, the tax man, that is to say the EU becoming the tax man in Europe, which I don't think anyone would say is a viable political project, short of that happening, I'm, I wonder what, what can the European Union do and what is it doing, what do you think it should do to improve this bad press that you talk about or the lack of press that you talk about in television, whether it be state-owned television uh, or private? Practically speaking, what can it do? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Last okay, so uh, I was asked to be short, uh, so if you think that my answer is not sufficient enough, uh, please forgive me. Uh, our representative from the media, is it called Ivanesta? Was it your first time Ivanesta? No? Ah, Ivan Esterhazy, Frau Esterhazy, okay, wunderbar. Schöner Name. Uh, zum tax system. Uh, the question was with the tax system, and I made a speech in, in Dublin before the referendum. The basis of what I said is that in the Lisbon Treaty for taxes, we have the unanimous vote of the Council of Ministers. And I think I mentioned in my speech that there is only one area where the European Parliament is excluded from co-decision. So co-decision does not make sense if there is unanimous vote in the, in the Council. 
And my message uh, to the Irish was, and I tried to convince those to whom I could speak, uh, my message was that without Ireland, this cannot be changed. Because it's unanimous vote. Nobody can force Ireland by, uh, nobody can force Ireland to give up uh, its own position because it's a unanimous vote. But if the French and the Germans and maybe others argue there should be a special sort of uh, tax harmonization, I cannot criticize it. It's the own decision of the government of Ireland whether they want to go this way or not. So I think my, my position is quite coherent. Without the Irish, this cannot be changed. But I think it's totally legitimate that some countries raise the question whether there should be some harmonization. I personally, I'm, a I'm, I'm against uh, total harmonization. I think it's always good to have um, a special, uh, special frame of, comp of uh, competition. But this is a, a different, uh, different point. Then, uh, Tim, concerning uh, the Mediterranean. I have been president of the Euromed Parliamentary Assembly from March 2008 to March 2009. And I was the successor in this position of the now interim president of Tunisia, Mr. Mbaza, whom I met some weeks ago uh, in Tunis, and he said, oh, you were my successor there. I'm not so happy as interim president. You should be my predecessor here as well. And I said, this is totally impossible. But so I'm saying this because I have some experience uh, with those countries. And I think that the European Investment Bank can play a very important role in giving money with low interest rates to those countries. And I totally agree to you that we have to open our markets for agricultural products. Because if we don't do it, how shall the people find uh, jobs, more jobs uh, in uh, Northern Africa, in the Arab countries? And they have a very, very young population. So, and we need to find the right balance in this field of agricultural products, especially with Spain. It's a problem for France as well, Portugal, for Italy. We, but it's my personal approach, and I argue in favor of opening uh, our, our markets. Uh, then you mentioned Turkey. Uh, I am quite frank to say it, I'm not in favor of Turkish membership, because we see already now how great or big the European Union is, with its uh, different psychologies, with the different cultural backgrounds, and so on. And once we have Turkey in the European Union, I deeply believe it. You may not all like this, but I say it because I say what I believe. I think politically, culturally, financially, and geographically, it would be too much for the European Union. But having said this, I am for very specialized and good relations with Turkey. It's a great country. They always have been uh, a very reliable uh, partner of, of NATO, at least mostly. And the Iraq question, one can see it so or so. Uh, but uh, we, uh, Turkey has its own honor. And I give you an example and uh, Lord Plum 
might be interested to get as former president of parliament this story as well. The protocol in the European Parliament is that the president of the European Parliament uh, welcomes a president of a state at the entrance of the parliament, the president of a country, and that the president of parliament brings back the president of a country to the exit. And as I mentioned already in Brussels, the office of the president of parliament is the 11th floor. And I made two exemptions from this principle. The one was your next king, William Prince, not William, Prince Charles, so this I made a mistake, sorry, I, Prince Charles, uh, because uh, I th the people around him thought it would be nice to welcome him at the entrance and to bring him uh, back, and so I, I did with a great, uh, great joy. And the other person was the Prime Minister of Turkey, Erdogan. And we had a very tough negotiation because I said to him what I say here. And this was not very, for him, not very nice to hear. And he had his foreign minister with him, he had his uh, European minister and another minister with him. And so I decided you have to make a gesture. And so I went down with him, the elevator, and at the exit, then you have to to do good and to say it, so he should know that uh, th this was, was something, a gesture. And I said how the protocol of the European Parliament is, and he was so, um, so, 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 uh, he really liked to hear uh, this uh, little story, and he knew that I respect his country and his personality, and he invited me uh, to visit Turkey, which I uh, will do. I have so far not done it, but I will do it. So this is my, my um, because the Arno Foundation has a representation in Ankara as well. So now our friend Michael, who is now a citizen of the United Kingdom. And you are not a citizen of Serbia anymore? Uh, double you have double citizenship. Okay, so you can bring good European ideas to both uh, of the countries. I've paid money. You have paid money. I've paid money Okay, okay. So Milosevic was, in my opinion, a person to whose policy we could not give our agreement. And I think the decision which has been taken by NATO and the international community was uh, the right one because we had to stop uh, the killing. But now this is a past, but we should never forget uh, the past. And I am, for one thing, proud as a German. And I think the Germans succeeded to, I don't never know this English word, aufarbeiten, to, to, uh, to accept the terrible history of Germany from 33 to 1945. That we know what our history was and that we deny everything what could happen, uh, that, that we are against anything that could, uh, should happen again uh, because of our past. And I think this is still a great challenge for Serbia with Milosevic, but even a greater challenge for Russia um, to, to, to see all the aspects of the totalitarian system, because I deeply believe you only can go into the future when you know your history, the good parts, the bad parts, and w when you are committed 
for for the understanding of this. I don't know whether I could make totally clear what I what I meant. In in Deutsch würde man sagen, die eigene Geschichte aufarbeiten. Is somebody here who could translate it? Overcome. Yeah, to overcome the own history, but I mean to to work uh, to to work through the own own history. I think this is very very important. Uh, so, I once heard a Spanish, uh, French uh, person saying that France uh, had, was on war with all countries in Europe, but not with Denmark. So, uh, this was quite, uh, quite uh, fortunate. And uh, uh, you speak about Mr. Putin. Uh, I think that our security, on, and this is my, my final uh, honor than the American uh, friend. Um, sorry, Sarah. Uh, uh, Mr. Putin, I think Mr. Putin should not bilaterally only discuss with the British, with the Germans, uh, with the French and so on. We need, and this is part of the Treaty of Lisbon, solidarity in the energy question. So it's a European question now. And the energy question is a question that, uh, that, that subject challenges uh, come to the European level. And, and if, if uh, Mr. Putin, the Prime Minister of uh, Russia, would have the chance to play with the British against the Germans, the Germans against the French, and so on, or the Polish, and it was due to the Polish that this came into the treaty, then we would uh, be lost. And so uh, I am defending strongly that this is a question which the European Union as a whole has to discuss uh, with the government uh, of Russia. And as far as our relation to the United States of America are concerned, the Americans are our partners, the Americans are our friends, but they should not dominate us, we should not dominate them. We should be partners on the basis uh, of equal relations. They are very strong businessmen, and if we in the European Union would not be strong and united, they always would have the advantage. So we should be united and then discuss questions with the United States of America and find uh, fair, uh, <coughs> fair solutions in the end. As far as our American friend taxation is concerned, in British history there is this famous word uh, which is not so liked here, but it was liked in the United States of America, no taxation without representation. This is not comparable to the European Union, but I personally think and this is not popular, popular, I know, that one day the European Union needs its own income. But this should not mean that there is more taxation for our citizens. If you take now, Germany has now more taxation uh, on fuels in the airplanes. So it's, it's, it's a German taxation. If we do this together on a European level, this would give the European Union an income and I think we should try to find uh, areas uh, where we can tax us away from the national level and in a, in, a, in, a, in a useful way have a special amount of taxation on the European level like uh, this uh, CO2 uh, taxation which the German government now uh, introduced. So uh, I hope that I more or less uh, gave an answer to your questions. It's always uh, nice to be here in the London School of Economics. And if you are not fighting for a united and free and democratic Europe, then I would not see 
uh, a chance for our common future, but I'm confident that you will do it. And I was very, very happy to be here for a second time. And very often one says one should do things for a third time. Hopefully this might come one day as well. All the best for your studies and for your personal and hopefully for your political life as well. Thank you so much.